0: Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the Other Side of I Do podcast. I am your host, Jan Bugai. You're listening to the podcast dedicated to providing a space for husbands and wives, mothers and fathers to come and hear others share their stories and some of their journey after seeing I do. It's a space to share that whatever season you're in, you're not alone, and to gain some insight, encouragement, and resources to work towards being a better version of yourself, for yourself, and your families. If you are here for the first time, thank you for joining. And if you're returning, welcome back. Before I introduce today's guest, I really wanted to share what I read this morning from the current devotional I'm reading. 100 Days to Brave by Annie F. Downs. The scripture reference for today was from the book of Psalms, chapter 24, verse 1, which reads The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's the NIV version. Now, Annie writes that our stories are not just our stories, but they also belong to God. So when he presses us to share the stories that we want to keep to ourselves, you know, the ones that may be embarrassing or the things we may be even, you know, insecure about and would rather not share. We must remember that although the story is about us. When God says to share it, to put it out there and tell someone. He already knows. He already sees the bigger picture and the other person or persons on the other side, needing to hear our stories. So I just say all this to reiterate how thankful I am for those who come here to share their stories, not just for themselves, but to help others. Now, I suppose this is a good time for me to introduce today's guest, Miss Laura Kitts. Laura is a wife and mother of three children. Laura is also the host of the podcast, Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs. Laura comes here today to share how an unexpected experience as a new parent in just three years into her marriage affected her, her relationship with her husband, and what she learned on the other side of I do from being a wife and mother parenting her daughter with special needs. Let's join the conversation. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the Other Side of I Do podcast. Hello. Good morning. I appreciate you making time to speak with me and my listeners this morning. Because the Other Side of I Do seeks to educate, encourage, and support husbands and wives, mothers and fathers regarding any situation or topic that arises after saying I do, When I came across your podcast, which is Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, I recognized it to be a topic that may not be talked about often. I feel that your story could not just help couples who have the same experience, but even those on the outside looking in. Hopefully, you can give some insight on how you and your husband take care of yourselves, prioritize your marriage. And your child with special needs.
1: Thank you, Jan. I appreciate being here.
0: Now, before we speak about um, you know your children and your story, um, could you talk about your husband a little bit? Like, how did y'all meet, and how long did you date before you got married? And how did you know he was the one? Sure,
1: that's the fun thing to talk about. <laughs> you know, you get to remember when you were just a baby and <laughs> having the time of your life. So we met in college and um, I went out of state to college. So I was born and raised in Kansas and now I live in Michigan and this is where I came to go to college. And I I came to Michigan to go to college with my best friend and um, we're still best friends. Everyone always asks that next. Um, And so I was in Michigan and I had um, been here, uh, for over a year, I was in my, I was the summer after my sophomore year of college. And I had told my mom after my freshman year of college, when I went home for the summer, I said, just so you know, I'm not coming back. <laughs> and I didn't mean ever. I just meant this was my last summer coming home. I'm not going to come back and live with you anymore. This is it. Just so, soak me in for these three months. <laughs> this, is, this is it. And so my sophomore year, you know, that summer, I I wanted to stay. I wanted to just live, you know, in the college town and and get an apartment and be big. Um, and so I found an apartment that I could sublet just for the summer. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. So I just got all that stuff set up in like three days. And I bought a car, I got a job and, and found an apartment that I could sublet. And so I didn't know these girls that I was living with at all. Um, but the one who, who it was her apartment and the, the other three of us were all subletting mm-hmm. from her roommates for the summer. Um, she, the first weekend, I think that we were there, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was right away the first weekend. Um, she got a call from her friend that lived just up the street. And he said, Hey, Kristen, we're having a party tonight. Come up, bring your roommates. And she's like, Okay, you know, do you guys wanna go? Blah, blah, blah. And so we were like, Sure. So that's how we met. That was my husband who called her, Um, (laughs) they were friends and they were in the greek system together he was in a fraternity and she was in a sorority and i wasn't in any of that it was so not at all my thing so i felt you know a little uncomfortable in that situation but was trying to you know be outgoing and talk to people and whatnot and so She had told us ahead of time, you know, there's six guys who live in this house and here, you know, they're they're Tony and they're Vince and they're uh, Joe and, you know, all the the people. And she was like trying to introduce us and stuff. To me, I came and I'm not even kidding. They all looked alike. They all looked exactly (laughs) like me. I could not tell one from the other. They all wore, I mean, this was the 90s, right? So they were all in baseball caps and flannel shirts and they were all frat boys that, which again, wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was just like, whatever, you know, one more, one more, one more, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six. you guys all look the same to me, but everybody was super, super nice. I had a good time. Everyone was very kind. Um, you know, made sure that me and the other roommate who were there that didn't know anybody made sure that we had people to talk to and we were, you know, taken care of. And so we had a nice time. Um, but then I Right after that, the next day, I went out of town for a week, and um, I went to camp to be a camp counselor, Um, and then I went home for a couple days to see my mom, and then I came back. So I was gone for at least a week, and I literally walked in the door to my apartment when I got back after a week, and my roommate, Kristen, said, oh, my God, Laura, Nate is in love with you, and I said, who's Nate? (laughs) So did and y'all that's
0: what
1: talk Sarah- that night? I mean, y'all- What's that? Did
0: y'all talk that night? I mean, y'all conversated? Um,
1: obviously we did, but I didn't know who we, I didn't know which one he was. <laughs> and so I said, who's Nate? And she tried to describe him to me by like, oh, he's the one that had, and then this is his car. He has a really great car, blah, blah, blah. Well, there was one of them that every time I drove by, there was this beautiful- teal like green mustang in the front yard that i just loved and i was like oh my gosh the one with the mustang are you kidding me i was so excited like that i was going to get to drive in this mustang um yeah it wasn't him the mustang belonged to his roommate <laughs> oh so yeah I, I think it's a hilarious story and so then we went up uh, uh after that for another party and um and then she pointed it out to me, you know, that one's Nate. I was like, oh, okay. So then, so then we started talking and we started dating. So okay.
0: the rest is history. So y'all dated for,
1: um, we many... dated for four years before we got married. Okay. Cool. Um, I guess by that time you had already graduated college and yes. Yep. We graduated. We were working our first jobs, um, having our first apartment and, you know, feeling like grownups. ups. So uh,
0: four years later, you got married. And how long were you married before you you'll started having children?
1: We were married for, um, let's see, three years. three years. We were married for three years before my oldest daughter was born. And so we got married in 1998 and she was born in 2001. And that's something that I was thinking about, um, you know, your podcast and your subject matter. And that's something that is really important to me that I always tell all the young ones that I know that are in that phase of just getting married. Um, And it's just, I'm so thankful that we, you know, waited three years to get to have to start a family and to have children. Um, You know, I know that some people and it's, I think typically, maybe when you're older and get married, that maybe if you want children, you do that very quickly. But sometimes it happens with younger kids too. And I was a person who loved kids. I grew up around kids. I babysat my whole life. I worked in the the campus preschool mm-hmm. um, at, in college. I nannied newborn twins. I mean, I just couldn't get enough of babies in my life and, and little kids in my life. I just, I loved it. I loved the, I called it controlled chaos. I loved the controlled chaos, like at the preschool and with the with the twins. And sometimes I would have the, the, the twins, two older siblings. And so I'd have all four. And I just, it was just, I was in my element. It was just, it was just me and I loved it. And so I really looked forward to having children. I, I used to say when my husband and I were dating, I used to say, I want lots of babies, lots of babies. And of course that would freak him out. But, <laughs> but that's, I mean, I always said I want at least four kids because I just love that, that element of controlled chaos. And I just love kids. And I just think that they're amazing creatures. Yeah.
0: So, um,
1: so on that note though, to finish what I started to say was that I think even then I knew that it was so, so important to be married and to be a couple before you're a family. Um, And so I really encourage everyone to give that phase of your life some time Um, because as we'll continue to discuss, you never know what you're gonna get when you have a kid. (laughs)
0: That's true, that's an important point. Uh, I Think about my husband and I, we got married in 2000, April, 2000, then our first child was born 2002. So yeah. Yeah, as I think about it, yeah, I wish we had waited just a little bit bit longer, which he wanted to. And I just like, we're getting older. Let's have some kids.
1: Yeah, same. But
0: anyway, I think
1: at least two years. I always tell everybody, you know, at least two years. And obviously, when my daughter daughter was born at three years, we got, you know, we got pregnant when we were married for two years and then, you know, had her in the third year. So, yeah, I just think that that's such an important time of life. You got to learn how to live with somebody and get long and work out the kinks and all that stuff that's new right
0: now how was your family did you come from um a good did you have a good template of marriage before you got married
1: no my parents divorced when I was five and I never really saw my dad didn't have a relationship at all with him um but I had two set well I say two sets of grandparents like that seems odd but uh, but one set of those is not my real grandparents, and so in my head, I—that's I, two out of three of my sets of grandparents that I was talking to you about. Uh-huh. Um, we, we, had, you know, we kind of adopted um, some older people in our life as our grandparents, and so them, and then my, my, one of my sets of real grandparents um, were married, you know, forever and ever, and had wonderful relationships where they yeah, I don't even know. I know, um, I don't know how long my one set of grandparents were married because they did pass when I was a bit younger, Um, but, you know, always saw them together and they supported my mom, um, you know, with things that we needed growing up. And so I saw them and, and the other set that I said with that we adopted, that was actually my mom's best friend and her husband. They were significantly older than my mom, but they had been best friends since my mom was in high school and so had always been there and been a part of our lives and um, were very, very close to them. And so had that for role models, but not in my immediate family. Okay. Okay. So I guess,
0: you know, going into your marriage, um, did you sort of look at them as, as a pattern of what you wanted
1: marriage to look like? I did. And I also very much looked toward my sister and her husband. She is five years older than I am. And. I just, um, you know, I really, and I, you know, when I was getting married, I actually went to her and, and talked to her about that and said, you know, I want my something blue to be from you because to me, like one day I was just driving down the road and the the sky was just so big that day. You know, it was just, it was just so big and blue with the, just the white puffy clouds, you know, that just perfect summer sky. Um, and I was just filled um, with love and peace um, in that moment, and I just instantly thought of my sister, and how it just felt like it represented, um, you know, an aspiration, a goal, that blue sky, you know, mm-hmm. and so it always reminded me of of that, of this ideal marriage, and um, I loved her and her husband and and what they had, and so I asked her to give me my something blue based on that, yeah.
0: So, awesome. Well, okay. So you guys were married about three. Yeah. In your third year, you had your first mm-hmm. child.
1: Right. Yep. And so we had, um, we had my daughter, she is now almost 20. She'll be 20 in a month. And so, um, that, that's super weird because <laughs> now she's in a, she's going to be an adult adult is what I've been saying. <laughs> you know, she, she became an adult two years ago, but she was still a teenager. So, you know, she's like teenagers are kids, <laughs> uh, but now she's going to be a real adult, which is just weird, but I also have two other kids who are younger, and so, you know, I just hold on to that. I'm not, I'm not super old yet, but, um, but so we, yep, we had her about 20 years ago, and She um, had a rare seizure disorder as an infant Mm -hmm. and that is what caused her to be now significantly developmentally delayed. And so she's uh, severely cognitively impaired and severely physically impaired um, from, as a result of that rare seizure disorder.
0: Okay. Um, What are the things that she's able to do?
1: So she has um, she has autism and cerebral palsy, and she also has epilepsy. She fortunately was seizure free most of her life. We were able to get rid of that rare seizure disorder as an infant, and what it, the kind that it is, it is specific to infancy. So you either outgrow it, or you you know can get rid of it with medication. So either way, she wasn't going to have that forever. Um, but the neurologist told us at that time. Um, that if you know once you have seizures you're just higher more you know high, more likely to have them again in life and that puberty is a really high time for them to return because your hormones are all over the place and your body's so out of whack um, that it's just easier for them to sneak in and that's exactly what happened in And we, you know, we were watching for that and anticipating it and and it did. So now she is also diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, And she has some other things too that just layer more difficulty on top of everything. But so that combination of what she has um, just is makes things extremely challenging because (coughs) because she, can walk. She Her cerebral palsy is the rare kind. <laughs> Most cerebral palsy is the kind where your muscles are super, super tight. You'll see maybe people that have to be in wheelchairs because they can't even straighten out their arms or legs all the way. So their muscles are really tight and they have to have a lot of surgeries to, um, <clears throat> to lengthen their muscles and to loosen them up. Mm-hmm. And so It's actually fortunate that my daughter has the rarer form of of cerebral palsy in this case because her muscles are much more loose. And so they're a little too loose, but that's better than being too tight in my opinion. Um, So she is able to walk. Okay. Um, but her gait is very unsteady. She's you know, kind of wobbly and, and people who aren't familiar with her are always worried she's gonna fall down because she just looks a bit unstable, but she doesn't fall. She doesn't ever fall. She's, she's good. I mean, she has fallen in her life um, here or there and that has been a trigger for us to know that something is wrong. And that was actually a trigger for us to know that she, her seizures had come back and we hadn't seen any yet we didn't know, and so they were, you know, making it worse, um, and so if she ever falls, then we know something bigger is definitely wrong, because normally she doesn't ever fall down, so um, so I don't worry about it, but every, <laughs> new people around her are like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Hi. Um I'm like, ah, she's fine, um, but so she, so she can walk, and so she can, um, but then you've got the, the autism on top of it, and severe autism, severe autism is rough, it's, really, really rough. Um, And so it brings severe sensory dysregulation. So that means that her sensory system, which means everything that you're bringing in from your environment, everything that you feel or see or smell or hear, um, for her and her brain is completely out of whack. And everything can be like super intensified um, in her system and so therefore be very assaulting to her, Mm -hmm. whereas it doesn't bother us. Um, We can tune out things in the background. Um, For instance, if you've got the TV running while you're having a conversation with someone, you can tune out the television while you listen to the person that you're talking to. For someone with autism and that auditory dysregularity, they can't do that. Everything in their environment is heard at the same volume level So imagine that, imagine if you've got an airplane going by outside and the TV on and someone's got the blender going in the kitchen or the dishwasher's running or whatever, and you're trying to have a conversation and they have a complete meltdown because it's too much. Mm -hmm. Everything that I just listed is heard at the exact same volume level as my voice right here in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so it's too overwhelming. It's too much to handle. And that's why people with autism have so many meltdowns, and that's why they can't handle their environment, and they can't, um, and so it takes a lot of therapy. It can be, it can be helped, it can be, and, you know, depending on the severity of their dysregulation, it it can be, you know, really totally managed fine um, through different strategies, but my daughter's is very severe, and so it's a constant management, like a daily, daily thing that we deal with. Oh, so I'm not sure where we started with that question. <laughs> you no, know, I did ask uh, what things she was able to do. But oh then- yes, yes. So she, so she can walk, um, but then the autism, that that severity layer of autism, um, tends to make her more, much more aggressive. Makes her, um, you know, more destructive, and she's often more a bull in a china shop versus being you know, behaviorally destructive. It's not necessarily like she's choosing to be bad as we would quote unquote say. but she just is in complete overwhelm and can't handle and just sort of freaks out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so destroys things in the house. And um, so that's where it's a bummer that she can walk, <laughs> because you know, so it's just this really, you know, double-edged sword. Um, you know, also kids who have autism uh, have a high rate of elopement, which means they run away, you know, they wander or they run off. Um, and that's. Uh, for a wide variety of reasons, which I won't even get into, but it's very common. And so she has that where if we don't have all the doors deadbolted, fortunately, because uh, she is so severely impaired physically too, she can't, she can now open doors. Like if they're unlocked, she can turn the doorknob and open it, but she hasn't figured out how to unlock the dead bolt or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So as long as the doors are dead bolted, she can't get out. But if someone came in or out and forgot to lock it, she'll walk right out. And, you know, we have found her down the end of the driveway uh, before and things like that. So um, the good thing is I would say, you know, yes, she does, you know, wander off if, if she can, but the benefit is that because of her cerebral palsy, she can't run, she can't go very fast. <laughs> so, so we do always catch her very quickly, you know? So there's silver linings too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Laura, I know, okay, she's about to turn 20, but let's, um, let's talk to the listeners about when she was first born and, you know, being new parents and um, she, you know, she's beginning to have these seizures and and different things going on. What was that like as a parent and how did that affect your marriage?
1: Yeah, back in the very beginning, um, you know, there's so much grief at that stage um, when you have a child with, with special needs, because that's when you're getting all the diagnoses. You're being told by all the professionals, all the things that are wrong with your child and all the things that she's not gonna do. Um, and so there's so much grief. And you know our society is not good at handling grief anyway. Um, but then you've got this unique form of grief where you're, you're grieving someone who's alive not someone who has passed on, which is really the only thing our society really comprehends. Mm-hmm. But it is easier for people to see at that phase in our lives that there is grief. It's easy for people to understand, you know, if they've had a child, they it, or if they even haven't had a child themselves, it's easy to understand, oh, if your baby got diagnosed with, with something and, or now they have a medical issue or they have to have surgeries. You know, that's a little bit easier for people to grasp. Um, And so we did have uh, an outpouring of support from the community at that time and we really leaned on one another heavily um, at that time. Um, We we balance each other very well and so being able to team up with all the specialist appointments and those sorts of big heavy things um, was really good for us because One of us has a strength in one area and the other one has a strength in another area. And so, you know, for instance, my husband is much better than I am at being able to think on the spot in those doctor appointments to be able to ask really good questions, Um, whereas I am like I need more time to process this, it's too overwhelming. And so I'm the one who's taking frantic notes cause I'm super type A and really organized. And so I've got the three ring binder with tabs and, <laughs> and sections and all the notes and all the forms and all the reports and all the school forms and all the everythings. Um, but he's the one who can think on his feet and ask really good questions, um, you know and that sort of thing. So, so as far as our marriage, you know, we really, are have always been and especially thankful for at that time of our lives uh, been a really good balance for one another um but it's it's really hard but that time you know we're both in the same place really we're both in the same place with the freshness of the grief um and so that worked out fine and and, and although you know you just have to know that everyone processes grief differently no matter who you are or what you're grieving everyone processes grief differently and so we didn't have a problem but i know that it is commonly a problem with special needs parents that um the couple is processing it very differently in a very different way and therefore really not on the same page with so many things and really unable to come together with all the important things and decisions and care because one is so far away from, from you know, just, you know, one could be so overwhelmed and, and in denial and not wanting to, you know, just repressing it all and, and, and maybe becoming a workaholic, throwing themselves into their job um, because they can't deal with it. And so all of the burden of the care is put on the other person who's, who's home. Um, mm-hmm. And so that can be very common. Uh, I'm very grateful that that wasn't our case and that my husband's work, he's worked at the same place this whole entire time. And they've, it's a great company and they've been so supportive all along. And he has always had a lot of flexibility to work from home or to, to go to all the appointments with me. So I didn't have to do all that stuff alone because that's another common problem that one parent has to work. I mean, whether or not they're being a workaholic, you know, sometimes they just have the type of a job that they just don't have that kind of flexibility. Like um, a good friend of mine's husband is a teacher. And so he just can't take a bunch of half days for doctor appointments for his kid. And, you know, it's just mm-hmm. that becomes a much bigger ordeal of, of having to have a substitute and then the effect on the. The kids in the class, and right. then instability. You know, there's just too much that goes with that job of being a teacher that you just can't take a ton of time off. So, um, so things like that, you know, can can obviously influence the situation and, and be a, a reason that one parent might have to do the big hard things alone. And that is um, that's just you know another layer of stress that's added to a very stressed situation.
0: Right. Right. Um- A lot of times, I'm glad you mentioned about the grief and how people process it differently. I didn't even think about it that way. How you said, well, one person may uh, be in denial and, or, you know, just stay away, work all the time just to get away from the situation. I didn't think about that as being uh, a way they handle grief. So um, thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. And I'm thinking of more and more real people that I know with different situations but it all boils down to one of the couple can't handle it and so shuts themselves down from from the family and from being involved and all the burden then falls on the other parent and then you've got resentment and you know things that build up over time because after years of that you 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 know you just kind of lose sight of their inability to cope with the grief. It's the every single day you're not here for me and I'm doing all this shit and I'm super stressed out Mm -hmm. and now I'm really pissed off at you and I don't even care if you're grieving because you're not here for me when I need you. You know, there just becomes so many layers that compound and compound on top of everything you're trying to deal with with your child. And so there's a very high divorce rate among special needs families, much higher than the average population. Because if there's any sort of crack in your relationship, it's just magnified. It's just you know, a, a place for water to drip in and expand and crack you, you know, wide open um, because it's just the most intensely stressful thing and it's chronic, it doesn't end. You know, I, it, I kept saying <laughs> your first question. Well, in that phase, you know, when she was a baby in that phase, it was like this in that phase, this is what happened. Because, um, because it's not like a container, um, like when you have the grief of someone who passes away. Um, you know, I lost my sister about four and a half years ago and I will never stop missing my sister. I will always have some level of grief for not having her in my life anymore, but it's so incredibly different than the grief that we carry for our children, even when we get past that stage of, okay, now she's got all her diagnoses, we're in the therapies, we're doing all the things and we know what's happening. Um, That's when kind of people fall away and think, oh, well, they're good now. And, you know, they don't need us anymore. They're in their groove. And yes, we do get in our groove, but the grief is ever renewing for us. It's chronic and it's, it always compounds on itself because each phase that your, of your child's life, new grief is added on. So I was talking about the you know, the infant stage earlier and, and that kind of grief, but then then they get into toddlerhood and, and school age, you know, And then you grieve that, oh, well, they don't learn to walk, they never learn to talk, they can't feed themselves. They're never going to be potty trained. They can't make friends. They don't get invited to to birthday parties. You know, there's just something that adds up and adds up and adds up with every new milestone that kids go through in every phase of life, you know, because then you get through all of that and you deal with and accept all of those things. And then they're middle school age and they're not interested in picking out their own clothes. Uh, They're not going to go to the school dance. They're not going to get their learner's permit. you know all the things so every phase of life there's just so much more grief piled on for us and that's what um you mentioned my podcast earlier and thank you for that that's what my podcast focuses on because i've um just recently just really discovered and, and started unearthing this grief in the last couple of years and i found that um it's just not talked about and more importantly it's not really recognized even even parents of kids with special needs don't realize, I didn't realize until a few years ago that what I, so much of what I was feeling was actually grief and not stress. I had been labeling it stress for so many years, mm-hmm. but I realized that it was actually grief. Uh, and it's this daily things that are reminders that our kids are different mm-hmm. and that our lives are different and that's it's just it's daily right and um and that was really eye-opening for me when I realized that and I started treating myself very differently at that point I started being much more compassionate with myself and giving myself so much more grace Now, Laura, hold on, how long did this take before you
0: realized that? I mean, she's 20 now, how, when
1: did this- Well, this was in 2018. I had a complete breakdown where I, um, my daughter had been going through puberty for a couple of years. And like I said earlier, puberty made her really aggressive Um, and her seizures came back and you know, everything was just really intense all the time we went back to the the phase uh that we had that we had since long gone which was so nice we had eight years where she slept at night and and you know she was relatively happy and things were well we were really in a group we had eight years of that and, and it was blissful um and then it all came crashing down and we went back to the phase before that which is she's a hot mess and we're living on eggshells every day. We never know when she's going to explode and, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop. And so you're, you're just living in heightened anxiety and heightened fight or flight or freeze response all the time. And our bodies just aren't made to handle that. Physic, you know, physically handle that Mm -hmm. um, kind of chronic fight or flight response to, to live in that space. You know, that's, that's designed to just keep you from getting eaten by a tiger that's not that's not designed to to live there all the time right Right. so um so when we so when all that was happening um she was so aggressive and uh I had a I had a complete breakdown and I had to and this was a year after my sister had passed away and so I was still very much grieving her and when I realized, what I realized had happened was the grief over my sister had just really cracked wide open this grief over my daughter that I didn't even realize that I had, that I had been carrying for 17 years, and I didn't even recognize. And um, so that is when I started really digging into what the heck is this, <laughs> you know, and And how come nobody talks about this? And how come I didn't even know this was even in me? And and really exploring it and really concentrating on myself and really um, starting to take care of myself in a way that I never had before. Um, And just really healing, healing. And so I spent two years really just totally and completely focusing on myself. Um, and, and you know, as much as a mom of three can, but, but I mean, I still took care of my kids, but but, but, but I cut out everything know. else. I yeah. cut out everything else. I cleared my plate from things that were not serving me. I stopped volunteering at school, and I stopped, you know, doing the extra projects. And they, oh sure, I can run that errand for you. I just stopped. I just start saying no. I just start saying no, and that is an amazing, amazing thing. <laughs> We all need to say no a lot more, I think. (laughs) Yes. So, so yeah, so that's what happened. So that was just, um, just in 2018. And then, uh, like I said, I started uh, really digging into that and spending two years um, focusing on it. And I began to write a book that I'm, I'm currently working on um, and started a business where I help other parents of kids with special needs to recognize. Recognize that grief and to um, learn how to put, make themselves a priority in a, a situation in a life that's really hard to make yourself a priority because your kid needs so much. Um, and so how do we do that? How do we really take care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I help them with, with self-care and recognizing that. And, um, and, like it, and like you said, we have a podcast. Yeah.
0: Well, thinking about that, <clears throat> prioritizing yourself And again i'm I'm still thinking about you know new parents now mary
1: and then my husband where does he go yeah right right yeah so that's super hard it is so hard you know so after that first infancy phase um we just you know there's so much grief and there's so much to do and like i said i'm super type a and i had all the notebooks and all the you know organizing tools and whatnot And I did everything for her. I ran myself ragged for her. She needed, she literally had 10 doctors when she was an infant. Um, She was in like three to four therapies a week. Um, Plus she was enrolled in in school as as an infant. They had the special education system, you know, takes kids birth to age three. Um, And so she was getting that uh, twice a week. So... And and I remember that time as a time where I just, I counted the minutes and literally counted the minutes. till my husband would get home from work because it was so hard. I couldn't look at one day at a time. I could only look at one task at a time to get through the day because the thought of, of he's not going to be here till five 30. I literally couldn't handle it. So that's, So that time was really hard. You know, that beginning time really brought us closer together. Like I said, we really leaned on each other, but then after kind of that newness and that phase went away and we got more in a groove, um, that's when, you know, the marriage is just so on the back burner because you have so many things that your child needs and I'm giving and giving and giving to her all day long. I don't have, I don't give to myself (laughs) and so you think I'm gonna give to you is is how I felt you know toward my husband and so I'm
0: sorry Laura um did y'all communicate that because that's one thing that's always mentioned no no
1: who communicates (laughs) don't be ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) they say communication is
0: you know one of the priorities and main keys of marriage it
1: is yeah. and nobody's good at it. Why are we so bad at that? I don't know. I sit back and I'm like, why are we so bad at that? Like he, I've known him longer than what, once I hit the point where it was a few years ago where I had known him half my life, you know, literally have, and now I've known him for more than half my life, you know, and have been literally in the same room with him the whole entire time you know it's like you can't be any closer to someone you know then than he and I are. have been married for 22 years and and um happily married but with great stress and great strain on our relationship um and and I think why are we so bad at, at communicating I don't get it I mean but it's it's something that we continually work on and we do the roller coaster of just because you just get so consumed in what you have to do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just don't make it a priority. Um, and so then t- so much time goes by that, like I said earlier, all those things compound on each other that you're just even dealing with with your own emotions um, that you just you know, we all just get in this loop in our head of of negativity and things that are hard and things that are stressful. And we were obviously also, you know, very much dealing with depression Mm -hmm. around our daughter and and everything. And, you know, and you lose family and you lose friends um, because people don't get it or they just stop inviting you to stuff because you can never go anyway. Um, So-
0: I know you talked about, of course, you know, your daughter has special needs and the host of therapies that she attended, but did you guys ever make time for yourselves for therapy? I mean, how did you guys make it?
1: Yeah, we were both in therapy when she was uh, very young and a baby. Um, And we, you know, and we both had to be on antidepressants and we were both in therapy, but we never went to like marriage therapy It was always individual therapy and I mean, we didn't really see a need for it. I mean, we, you know, we weren't, there wasn't, I mean, in retrospect, now I understand there can always be a need for, for, for marriage counseling, just to help everybody be on the same page, to help everybody learn how to really communicate, you know, with each other. so that would so be well. something that
0: you would. You know, suggest to parents now,
1: absolutely. I could 100% see what an amazing thing that could have been for us. Um, and 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 we've got it good, yeah. <laughs> All that hard, hard, hard stuff I just described like, we've got it good, you know, because we we do have a strong relationship, but there are so many who really struggle so much more than we do, and so, um, I, I think marriage counseling, you know, for us would have been so great, just because now I understand how great counseling is. It's a kind of stigma, you know, and, and if you don't have experience with it, you feel like there's something wrong with you, or you're, you know, have, you're mentally unstable, and so you need a psychiatrist, and, you know, there's just that sort of societal stigma, which is just totally untrue, which I know now that I'm 47, but when I was 27, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. So um, so in retrospect, 100%, I would definitely recommend people find a great marriage counselor. And it's, you know, just to help you be on the same page and support one another and understand what each other's needs are and, and how each other is processing that grief and functioning right. and um, that sort of thing. That would, that would be amazing.
0: Yeah. I think about when you said, you know, why are we so bad at communicating? I just think about me and my husband. I mean, a lot of times I'm thinking about what's bothering me, what's on my mind, what I have to do. And I'm not even thinking about, you know, how he's feeling with, you know, his job, his work, and then coming home and dealing with, you know, the kids and other situations. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times I think we just, um, I hate to say it, but I don't know, maybe the word, selfish, not the word, but we're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about how I'm feeling, what's hurting me, uh, you know. And so having that, I guess, mediator as a counselor to help you talk things out and hear others' points of view and, you know, help you process some of this, some of the things that are going on.
1: Right. And, you know, another thing I didn't know was that, you know, going to a marriage counselor isn't just for people who are, like, they're at the point of where they hate each other and they want a divorce. Right. Because that's, you know, that's the only image I'd ever seen on television or movies or anything about counseling. You're either suicidal or you hate each other and want a divorce. That's why people go to counselors. That was my view in my twenties and thirties. You know, now, again, now I know it's completely untrue. And I hope everybody who's listening, that's completely untrue. (laughs) It's just, it's just not, it's just not true at all. And we could all benefit from someone who you know, just has a different perspective, has a different um, handle on being able to see where we're at with our stress and grief and and coping skills. Right. um, And just help us along on our journey. So yeah, we should all be in therapy. It's great.
0: (laughs) I believe that. I believe that. Well, um, let's talk about um, faith. Did faith play a role in your marriage? Are you a woman of faith? What? How does
1: that play in your? So I am very spiritual, um, but I'm not religious, mm-hmm. and so I very much um, believe, you know, that there is an afterlife, that there is a God, there is a higher power that's guiding us, and that we are all connected. But you know, so much of that growth and learning and development in that area comes with age. And experience in life and maturity. So I can't say that at 27, I, you know, had the insight on all of that that I do now. Um, So we didn't, you know, have a faith, you know, quote, unquote, faith community or anything like that for support as we were going through anything.
0: Right, right. Well, um, is there anything else that you would like to add or share with
1: you know, married couples or new people. Well, I, you know, I love that you brought up the counseling because I hadn't actually thought of that um, as as a thing that would just be great to do. And now I'm like, oh gosh, now I want to run down and tell my husband we should go to counseling and he's going to be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, no, because I just think it's great, not because I think we have anything wrong.
0: <laughs> right, I mean, I just think it's awesome. Just like I said, having someone there just you know, someone you can just talk to and share what's going on and like, oh, they can just help you just pinpoint some things that, you know, you could do differently or, or think of it, think mm-hmm. differently about it.
1: Yeah. Just help you say like, well, what if you, you know, approached it like this instead of that, or how about mm-hmm. if you said this to him instead of that, and, you know, you might really get a different response and be like, oh yeah, you're probably really right about that. <laughs> So I think that's super beneficial. And like I said, I hadn't thought of that offering that as as a suggestion to people, but to really make people aware um, of the levels and layers of grief that parents of kids with special needs carry, because it defines us and we don't even realize that it's defining us. And For people in the community who don't have a child with special needs, if you know somebody or love somebody who does, which is more and more and more common these days with the huge rate of autism, um, you know, if you know somebody or love somebody who's a parent, just send them a card now and then, send them a text now and then, let them know you're thinking about them, just that. I mean, you don't have to like know what to say. You don't have to know what to do. You certainly don't have to fix anything. Thing. We don't want you to try to fix anything. Please don't give us advice. <laughs> um, just tell us that you love us and that you know you're there and can come over and do laundry if we want or something. You know, right, right.
0: I think I don't. Was I? Li- I know I listened to two your your trailer and um, maybe the, your wife starting the podcast, and then I listened to one with um Wendy. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know where it came to my mind that. Maybe she said it's something about people are always trying to tell you what to do. And I thought about that when I first had my child, you know, people call and say, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing that. And I'm thinking to myself, why don't you come up here and wash these clothes, wash these dishes, come <laughs> exactly. help me in that way, you know, but uh, <laughs>
1: exactly. that
0: means a lot, um, especially as new parents. Yeah, we don't know everything to do, but um, we don't need to be beat over the head about what you need to be doing. You mm-hmm. know, you can help us. And a whole lot of other ways you know just,
1: exactly yeah. exactly you know and people who want to give you medical advice super frustrating right super right frustrating. you already just have a in of relationship and I know that's not their intention I know that everybody means well you know and loves you and wants to help but yeah people just be a little more conscientious about what's actually helpful
0: hmm well Thank you so much, Laura, for taking the time out to speak with me and my listeners. Thank you, Jan. I had a great time. Now, before we go, um, how could my listeners, um, you know, get in touch with you or listen to the
1: podcast? What, what? Yeah. You know, if someone is a parent of a child with special needs, please visit my website, which is laurakitts.com. And my name is L-A-R-A-K-I-T-T-S. And so laurakids.com, and I have all the information on my programs. I, you know, I have a support club and and different things that I'm doing, but if people are just interested in in learning more about how to support us, I'd love to have you listen to my podcast because that's really for everyone to learn from. And so that, again, is called Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we go, one thing I know you mentioned that, um, you went somewhere and and you learned some things of how to guide yourself and to care for yourself. What is one thing maybe a parent can do today to prioritize themselves or, or take care of themselves?
1: What I teach my clients and the members in my club is there are two things, two methods that make it possible for you to make yourself a priority. And the first one is baby steps. You just, you don't decide that you're going to start working out every single morning because you're not going to start working out every single morning. I'm going to tell you that right now. And then you're not going to do it. And then you're going to like beat yourself up about it. And then you're just going to quit and not do it. Um, So it's all about baby steps. It's not about working out for 30 minutes every day. It's about taking three minutes to take some deep breaths, to stop, to sit down, For five minutes and put your feet up and not do anything else, not multitask, not sit down while you're cutting out this stuff for school or hemming your kids' pants or whatever. Sit down and do nothing and breathe and concentrate on relaxing your body. It's all about bringing down your nervous system because, like I said, we're in that heightened anxiety and that heightened fight, flight, or freeze mode a lot as parents on Mm -hmm. a regular and daily basis. So you need to bring down your nervous system and do it with baby steps. And the second method that I teach is called habit stacking. And so you can add more self-care into your day by stacking it with something that you already do habitually every day. And so if you, uh, you know, every day, if you have kids that you have to drive around to a bunch of appointments or to sports after school or whatever, um, every single time you get in your car before you put your seatbelt on, take three long, slow, deep breaths, then put on your seatbelt, back out and go that's not going to make you late. That's not, you know, and just taking that time to stop long, slow, deep breaths, relaxes your shoulders away from your ears, relaxes your body, makes you feel calmer even before you're about to drive, which is great, but just in general. and So that's habit stacking. If you make your coffee every morning, um, you know, maybe you could do a couple of back stretches um, against the wall. If you have a sore back, I have a really bad back. So I'm always thinking of how can I do my back stretches? (laughs) Um, And many of us do if we have to physically lift our kids and be really physically involved with our kids. So those kinds of things, that's what habit stacking means. So what little tiny baby step self-care item can you do on top of something you're already doing? Good. That's my advice.
0: Good. Thank you. Those are good tips. I think we Thanks. all can use those.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everybody can do it.
0: Well, thank you again, Laura. Uh, I appreciate your time. And um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jan. Bye-bye. As I mentioned to Laura, I really think this message is not just for parents and couples, but for those on the outside looking in also. If there is someone you could reach out to today to give support, do that. Yeah, I understand we're in COVID season, so going over to someone's home to fold laundry or wash dishes may not be practical. But just reach out and ask, hey, you know, what can I do to help? Or like Laura said, just call, just text to say you're thinking about them. COVID has isolated many. But the isolation she expresses, many parents of children with special needs experience, didn't begin with this pandemic. If you've gained some insight today, use the link in the show notes to leave me a voice message, or message me on Instagram at the other side of I do. If you would, share this episode with someone, and of course, subscribe so you won't miss any upcoming episodes. See you guys next time.